0: As you're able, if you'll stand, we're going to read 1 John chapter 2. We're only going to read two verses. You can find it on page 1301 in the Pew Bible. This is 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. If you'll be seated and our children will be dismissed to attend their classes. Well, not a lot of scripture to cover in this passage. Uh, two verses. i, I got to tell you, I'm excited to preach this sermon. Uh, very, very excited. Uh, because this, uh, there's a lot here. So I'm going to dispense with the pleasantries and we're going to dive right in. And we're just going to go through this passage one by one and see what all there is that God would have for us. The first uh, we're going to look at first uh, verse 1, the very first part of verse 1. I just want you to notice something. Read there. It says, my little children. Now, John is writing this letter, the Apostle John, and eight times, eight other times, excuse me, than this one, he uses the phrase or refers to the people as children uh 212 213 218 228 37 318 44 and 521 if someone was keeping count um but he does it he does it eight other times but one thing i read in preparation that one commentator pointed out is this is the only time in the whole uh, of the of the epistle of first john where he adds the word my he calls them little children, but at this particular point, he says, my little children. Now, uh, there is a way in which we can draw attention, draw our children's attention to ourselves um, by speaking to them. I have two sons, uh, if you're a visitor here, I have, I have two sons, and if there's a group of Boys or a group, as often there is at our house, a group of neighborhood children there, Uh, sometimes I will say, uh, now Cooper boys or my boys, pay attention, right? And I'm, I'm about to give them a rule that maybe is not a rule for everyone else, but it's a rule for them. Uh, and I say, I want them to know I'm, I'm talking to them specifically uh, as my children. And, and this is what John is doing here, is he is reminding them of his relationship, reminding these believ- believers of his relationship with them, because what he is about to say is of paramount importance. This is very important, very important what he's about to say. What does he say? He says, my little children. And then look, he says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, this is what I love about John. I think I said this last week, but John does this in his gospel. He also does it in first John three times. He tells us exactly why he's writing to us. He he doesn't leave it for interpretation. He says, I'm writing these things to you. Uh, in, in the Gospel of John, he says, "Writing these things, many Jesus did many signs, many things. But I'm writing these things so that you might believe that He is the Messiah." Well, he tells us here that his purpose in writing these things is so that these believers and us that we may not sin. I read uh, another commentator pointed. I don't know where I read this actually, so I can't really give attribution, but I know that it's true. Is that when John Wesley gave, when John Wesley's mother gave him his Bible, she wrote on the inside cover, This book will keep you away from sin, and sin will keep you away from this book. And what John is talking about here is, well, we have to ask the question when John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin is John talking about perfectionism. These kind of people exist. I've met them in person uh, multiple occasions. Uh, in other words, these people believe this, but we want to ask the question, on this side of heaven, can a Christian be sanctified to such a degree that they no longer sin? Now, the answer to that question is no. Despite what one man was very adamant. <laughs> I got into... Very early in my ministry, when I was a youth minister in Tupelo, a man accosted me because I said I was struggling with sin, and he said, "Well, you can't be a Christian if you're struggling with sin." Okay, well, uh, my seminary education says otherwise, but I'll listen to you, man, at a football game, and uh, I'm not even joking. I know that's kind of funny to say, but this man, at one point, I tried to talk to the scriptures through the scriptures with this man, and. Uh, I said, well, we're just going to have to agree to disagree, but I will pray for you. And he said, don't bother praying for me. Your prayers won't get past your teeth because you sin. I was like, okay, well, (laughs) that's one thing to get off the to-do list right there. Uh, Now, that's kind of funny, but also it's really sad, right? Is this what John teaches? Well, we know that's not the case, okay? The short answer is absolutely not. And there are proof text for that even in this very verse but more on that in a second first the apostle john what the apostle john is doing here is he's trying to hold two things in tension like imagine a string being pulled taut on one hand if you read first john chapter one you'll see that john is adamant that we must admit that we are sinners if we say that we have no sin then we we're lying we're denying our sinfulness we're denying christ at the same time, while we must hold that, that part of the string, at the same time, all Christians are called to repentance and the power by God's Spirit to victory over sin. So we're holding these two things in tension. And you can see that in the rest of the sentence. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin. Now, you might read that. This is, a, this is um, well, we'll... I need to slow down for a second. I'm so excited to talk about this, but uh, not to get nerdy on you. But this is a, there's a Greek word here. It's used one other time by Jesus. This phrase, "If anyone does sin," right? It's used one other time in Luke chapter 17:3 when he's talking about forgiveness. Jesus uses this exact word and says, "Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him." And they tortured us with Greek in uh, seminary so that we might know things like this, which is the, the way that this verb is written and the way that it's conjugated and all that boring stuff that you in high school have to do in Spanish or French or Latin or whatever you're doing. The way it, it's an error subjunctive third class. That's not important. But what it means is this. It means whatever is the condition... There's a strong possibility it's going to happen. It's very likely to happen. So when when John says, if anyone does sin, what he's saying basically is, if anyone does sin, and they're going to. And they're going to. So I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, which is inevitable, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ the Righteous. This word advocate means helper. It's the same word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit. The word is paraclete, but he says in uh, John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Another helper. So who is the first helper? The first helper is Jesus. He is our advocate, but we have another advocate in the Holy Spirit. And uh, the scriptures highlight this aspect of Jesus' ministry in Romans chapter 8. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25, the writer writes, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is John trying to tell us when he tells us that Jesus is our advocate? Jesus vouches for Christians. Now, some of you have had to get loans before. Um, Maybe it's a mortgage or who knows for what you might be borrowing money. And some of you, when you've needed a loan, have been unable to to secure that loan because you have not, maybe you're young and you haven't built up enough credit or your uh, debt-to-income ratio is not good. I'm not a loan officer, Um, (laughs) although I did major in finance, but I've forgotten almost all of it. But in that situation, you can have what's called a cosigner. A cosigner. And I know many of you are familiar with this, but just in case you're not, that means that someone can go and borrow money from the bank, and if the bank is not sure they're going to be able to pay it back, they, they ask them to go find someone who maybe is more likely to be able to pay it back to sign as well and say, Look, if this person can't pay back their loan, I'll pay back their loan. Now, Jesus Christ is your advocate. That means that he looks at you and he knows that you can't pay back your debt and he still cosigns for you. That is the gospel. That he looks at you. Most of the people who, if you ever have to get someone to co-sign on a loan for you, they're really expecting you to pay it back, right? It's probably like your parents or a relative or a really good friend and they're expecting you to pay it back. But Jesus cosigns on your debt of sin and he knows you will never pay it back. He knows he's going to pay the whole thing. So he is our advocate. That is his role. But what are his qualifications to be an advocate? He tells us right there in just three words. Jesus Christ, I guess does or four words. Jesus Christ, the righteous. His name is Jesus. His role is Christ. That's not his last name. It's his role as the anointed one. And how is he able to pay back that will? Because he is righteous. He has perfect righteousness. If you're a child in here today. You're back in school. I'm sorry about that. Uh, not too sorry, but a little bit sorry about it. And, and I just want to explain this to you the simplest way I can. Jesus Christ has perfect rights. That, that means that he made a hundred on the test. He got all the answers right and even some extra credit. He got it all. And you didn't get any of the answers right. You didn't make a 50, which you'd be scared to tell your parents that, or a 30, Scared still to tell your parents. Everyone in here made a zero. A zero on the test. And what it means that Jesus Christ's righteousness is ours is that Jesus Christ says, Here, you can have my hundred. Put your name on the top of my paper. It's yours. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. He is our advocate. And he is our advocate and qualified to be our advocate because he is totally righteous. Verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation. What does that mean? To propitiate means to satisfy or to soak up wrath. In this instance, God's wrath. That Jesus Christ soaks up God's wrath for us. He absorbs, He satisfies God's wrath. Now a lot of people don't like that kind of, that kind of terminology. Well, we might not realize it. But we want a wrathful God. We, we want a wrathful God. I'm going to do my best to talk about this without crying. Um, But, and I promise you I'm not doing it for effect. This is what I thought of when I thought of God's wrath. Um, It hasn't even been a year uh, since the shooting in Nashville at Covenant School and Church. And obviously, that's a sister church of ours. Every shooting is terrible, but that, that shooting hits close to home. And, uh, you know, there's a man who was our executive minister, Patrick, and he's the executive minister over there. And and that was terrible. And later on, they, they released the video of the policeman responding to that. And I watched it. And they're running in. And they're yelling and screaming, and they've got their weapons, and they're checking their corners, and they're doing all this stuff. And eventually, they find their way to the person who has committed these atrocities. And they don't waste any time executing swift justice and wrath upon that person. And there is a part of us that wants that. It doesn't make it any better, I can tell you that. It's. It, It doesn't hurt any less that that atrocity was committed. But we want that wrath. We want that justice. Because if if God does not have wrath and if God does not execute justice, then he's not worthy of worship. But the fact is, he does. He does. And Jesus is our propitiation because he stands between us and that wrath. There was this guy on television who got kind of famous. He was taking sham towels and he was reselling them for way much, way more than they were worth. They were called sham wows. And he had this presentation where he would sell them and he would take this towel that looked like it was just a little bitty thing and he would just pour water onto something and then he would take that towel just barely touch it and then he would pick it up and he would wring it and just an unbelievable amount of water would come out. And people were like, oh, I'll buy it, I'll pay 200 or 300 percent. And he just kept doing it. And he became somewhat famous because of that. But I tell you that because there was a little baby that was born in Bethlehem. We celebrated his birth not a month ago. And in that little package, in in that little package, was our absorption, our propitiation. And that little baby was able to take all of God's wrath that was rightly pointed at us and to stand in the way, to go to the cross willingly and say, I will take that. I will take it. Now, here's the application, okay? When Jesus Christ went to the cross... He said it is finished and he had propitiated all of God's wrath on his children and that means that if you're here today that no matter how ugly or gross your sin is no matter how many bad things that you've said or done yes even that thing that if you are in Christ Jesus Christ is your propitiation. He soaks up God's wrath on your account. Willingly, he accepts it. You are the violator. You are... I am justly deserving of God's wrath. And Jesus stands in the way and says, It is all paid for. There is not one little bit that is not paid for. I pay for it all. If you don't hear anything else... Please hear that. That's why we're here this morning. Before we close, we've got to do two things. We've got to say, so what? But before we get to, so what? We've got to answer this question that you may have had about verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, is John teaching here that everyone, regardless of faith has had God's wrath satisfied for them in Jesus Christ. And that that everyone, every, this is called universalism, that everyone is saved. You could eisegete this passage. That means to take this passage outside of itself, strip it of all context, and you could make the argument, oh, well, everyone is saved no matter what. No matter faith, no matter anything, everyone is saved in Christ. The number one eisegeted passage in the Bible that makes... All of our eyes roll. Is when you rightly say, hey, that's not a right thing or that's not a good thing. And someone pulls out of context the phrase, judge not, lest ye be judged. All right? That is worthy of an eye roll. Um, but this it is John teaching universalism. We have to address that. Well, first of all, if he is teaching universalism, it's internally inconsistent with the rest of the letter. And I'm not trying to step on future sermons. But in 1 John 3.10, he says this, by this, is it, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are, chi- who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John clearly believes that there is a distinction between those who are in Christ and those who are out. Not only that is inconsistent with all of Jesus' teaching. Jesus spent much of his time talking about hell and the reality of it and talking about the need for repentance. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. He said it over and over again. So no, this is not universalism. Well, what is it? What is it? And this is so encouraging when you understand how John uses the word world. John is trying to teach us a lesson. And that lesson is... That God's people can come from anywhere in the world. From anywhere. And that what defines someone as being in Christ is that they are in Christ. It is the most defining attribute. And this is something that we need to hear, that I need to hear and that you need to hear. Because we are desperately trying to define ourselves by all kinds of things. But but hear me say this, because this is what John is saying. Whatever you think is your most defining characteristic or attribute, if you think it's your race or your ethnicity or your nationality or your family name or whatever it is, Jesus Christ cuts across all of it. All of it. And the lie that the world will tell you is that they will take those little bits of your identity and say, that is what defines you. You have to call yourself that because that is the thing that makes you who you are. And Jesus Christ says, no, there is no Jew nor Greek. There is no male, no female. We are all in Christ. You know, when Jesus died, when Jesus died, something happened that all three of the synoptic synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them record. It's that there's this curtain in the temple. And this curtain is torn in two from the top when Jesus dies. It's torn in two from the top. And this curtain had separated... The holy of holies where God's presence dwelt with the rest of the world. And basically, if I may paraphrase, what God is saying and what John is saying here is that in Jesus Christ, that God is inviting the world in. He's saying he came to the Jews first. He did. But now he's inviting us, the Gentiles, in and saying, come, your sins are. can be propitiated. The the sacrifice has been made. The whole world may come, and that's good news. All right, well, so what? What do we do with all this? I just want to I want to end by trying to think in your shoes for a second. You're a mom or an accountant or a student or a lawyer or a contractor or whatever it is that you do, a doctor, a financial advisor, I don't you know, a soldier. Y'all got all kinds of roles, right? How does first John chapter two verses one and two change the way you do those things? What would it look like for you to live your life As if your debt was completely paid. And that all of God's wrath towards you... Was soaked up in Jesus Christ. I can tell you what it wouldn't look like. Jesus tells us in Matthew 18... He tells a story about a man who had a huge debt. And that debt was forgiven. I did the math and it's 3.48 billion dollars. He calls it 10,000 talents. But you can do the math and find out that in today's dollars... That's 3.48 billion dollars, which is a number that is just ridiculous. Um, if we took, I think there's all kinds of ways to, to, uh, <laughs> to visualize this, but if you took, uh, a Chevy Silverado and you made it of pure gold, right? Um, and, uh, how, however much it weighs, a Chevy, a Z71 or something like that, if you took it and you made everything in it was pure gold, even the tires and everything was pure gold, you could line up those for 1.3 miles. Nose to bumper, and that's about how much debt this guy was forgiven, right? It's just an unthinkable amount. And yet, when he is forgiven this debt, when the master says, I'm not holding it against you, he goes out and he shakes down this other servant for $5,800. Now, $5,800 is not nothing, right? But think about it in comparison to $3.48 billion. It really is nothing, right? See, he did not believe he was forgiven, and therefore he lived, Like he was not forgiven. Like he had to exact, he had to um, acquire everything that he felt he was owed. That's what it would not look like. But what would it look like? Jesus tells another story. Someone asks him what it's like to love your neighbor, and he tells a story about a man who was a Samaritan, and the Samaritan finds another man on the side of the road who has been beaten and robbed. And this Samaritan knows that if the roles were reversed, this man would just walk right by him. Walk right by him. And instead, this Samaritan stops. He dresses this guy's wounds. He carries him into town on his own animal. He puts him up in, a, in an inn. He even leaves money to cover the cost. This man lived as if, as if he'd been forgiven, the Samaritan. My challenge to you this week is this. If you have not reached out in Christ, reached out in faith to Christ, if your debt is not fully paid, I would love to talk with you about that. Bill would love to talk with you about that. Any of our members would love to talk with you about praying to God and asking Him to pay your debt. And the most beautiful news is that He will. That if you reach out to Him in faith, that He will answer. If you knock on the door, He will answer. But if you are in Christ and you have been forgiven, then in everything you do this week, my challenge to you is this. To do it as if your unpayable debt has been paid. Because it has. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word because your word is truth and we pray that you would sanctify us in it. Lord, we deserve your wrath. We have earned it not only in the distant past, but even today. And Lord, wonder of wonders, you pay our debt you willingly place yourself in the way of God's wrath so that you might call us brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the Most High God. Lord, if we believe that, it will change our lives. Help us to believe it. Help our unbelief. And through your Spirit, work in us that we might spread that good news all over Montgomery, Alabama, and the rest of the world. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.